If you live in Appalachia, have you ever heard people say this? Man, West Virginia sucks. I want to get out of here. And you hear that so much from so, like so many young people and I hear it now and I'm like, yeah, I was totally like that until I found what is the greatest hidden gems of West Virginia. Today on Inside Appalachia, we'll hear how folks like Corey Lilly helped to make skiing, whitewater rafting, and rock climbing more accessible to people in West Virginia. We'll also learn about a West Virginia metal band that plays songs about local history and how their fans respond to it. A lot of them are kind of like, man, I, I never thought that anybody would make music about this. That's the last thing I thought that a metal band would be about. And what can help kids who experience trauma? Kids need to know that someone loves them. They need to have hope. Something as simple as hope that it's going to be okay is critical. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. It's definitely winter here in Appalachia. As we record this, I've still got snow outside from 10 days ago. A lot of people are getting out and skiing, but it's a sport that has a high cost to entry. And lift tickets can cost upwards of $200 a day. But in West Virginia, there are grassroots efforts to make skiing and other outdoor sports more affordable. Part of that effort is headed up by Corey Lilly. He's the director of outdoor economic development in the city of Beckley. Lilly grew up in West Virginia, and he's one of the state's top adventure athletes. He's traveled the world as a professional skier and kayaker. He moved back to the state full-time about two years ago to focus on bridging the economic gap in the outdoor sports world. Here's our interview. You know, Corey, how I kind of stumbled into wanting to interview you, you had posted about this new book, Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow by Heather Hansman. You're actually featured in there. And um, in your post, you wrote something that really resonated with me. Often we think with skiing that it's, you know, an expensive sport to get into. And you said in your post that Quote, West Virginians have advocated for and welcomed lower income community members to the sport and how we've built a culture out of it, a community movement out of it and a life out of it. Can you kind of expand on that and what you were getting at that in your post? The West Virginia ski scene is a very inclusive, welcoming, affordable way to become a skier. And it's a special thing to be a part of. And the West Virginia ski scene, instead of trending towards becoming more expensive and more exclusive, it's become more inclusive and more accepting of new skiers. Skiing, it's oftentimes thought of as this vacation, but that's at really a ski resort. And I see skiing as there's ski resorts and there's ski areas. And ski areas is a lot of time where it's cheaper, more affordable to go. And income inequality gap in skiing and outdoor recreation as a whole, and with the issues across the nation because of COVID, that gap is widening. Yeah. But if you want to do these sports, in West Virginia is the most affordable place that you can do these sports. To be a skier, to be a whitewater kayaker, to be a rock climber. And how do you think West Virginia has managed to do that when you look at so many resorts out in the Rocky Mountains that, I mean, like a ticket for one ski day is like $200? I think that the West Virginia ski scene often imitates a lot of what's happening in West Virginia. And, and what I mean by that is that while West Virginians, we don't typically have a lot of money, but we have a lot of grit and we have a lot of uh, rich culture that exists here. And so I think it's just a byproduct of being a West Virginian is being inclusive and going out and doing what it is that your passion is, no matter what um, is put in front of you. And I think that has just shown itself in the ski industry. Yeah. And can you also kind of speak to why winter outdoor recreation matters? I mean, why, why is that something that everyone should have an opportunity to try out? Well, first it's a blast and it's the most fun that <laughs> you can maybe ever have in the winter time is putting on a two boards on your feet and sliding around with your friends and 
uh, maybe drinking moonshine along the way or whatever. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so much fun and such a great way to build community and uh, find a meaningful way to spend time in, in nature in a way that you can challenge yourself. So then what about your work now as director of outdoor economic development in Beckley? What does that involve? So I've traveled the world by way of kayak and skiing. And in 2017, I was invited to go to Washington, D.C., where I spoke with our senators and congressmen of West Virginia about the Great American Outdoors Act. And I was recognizing that in my home uh, state that it wasn't just a core group of outdoor enthusiasts that were starting to recognize the benefits of outdoor recreation. It was becoming recognized as an economic driver, as a means to a solution for the opioid epidemic, as one solution, I should say. I recognized that momentum taking place. And the city of Beckley has a lot of opportunity to grow in outdoor recreation. And the momentum and the time is now to really start bringing what I've learned in my experiences with outdoor recreation back to my hometown. So broadly speaking, for folks that like are in a lower income household, what what are some ideas of like just to recreate outside your own door, wherever you are in the state or in Appalachia? We have to look at what is obtainable within a city. Like I wish that we could just place a ski resort within the middle of the city, but there's other outdoor recreation sports. And this is what's really unique about the city of Beckley that you can bring to the city. One of those being mountain biking. And in the city's case can be fishing. It can be rock climbing and then historical uh, uh, interpretive experiences in the outdoors with our coal history. So to, to further elaborate on the opportunities that the city of Beckley has just recently, there's been rock climbing areas that have been established that are within walking distance of four schools. There are mountain biking trails that are being developed that are within walking distance or riding distance of inner city. That's so cool. I love that. You were saying one of your goals was kind of looking at the intersection between outdoor recreation and appreciation of the outdoors and healing from the opioid epidemic. Can you kind of expand on that? What you see, um, and, and this is, you know, it's, that is a, it's a very complex issue. And this is just one way to approach helping that epidemic. And when you look at traditional ball sports, what you see is that the participation in that sport rapidly declines in the late teens as people are beginning to be introduced to the world as an adult. And that's oftentimes when you see a large spike in the use of drugs. And so what outdoor recreation can do is it can give a lifelong opportunity for progression and for fullness and community that might be left out if you grew up your whole life with only being involved in uh, the traditional ball sports. <clears throat> now, I love football and I love soccer and I grew up playing these sports, but I stopped doing them at a certain age. The majority of other people stopped doing them at a certain age, but that's exactly the same time when outdoor rec really starts to take off. And Corey, just to kind of wrap things up, I'm curious, did you always kind of feel like you were going to come back kind of full time? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I was one of those kids I was like, man, West Virginia sucks. I want to get out of here. And you hear that so much from so, like so many young people and I hear it now and I'm like, yeah, I was totally like that until I found what is the greatest hidden gems of West Virginia. And that's it's whitewater, it's climbing. And when I left West Virginia and I was traveling and I was thinking I was going to find something better, but then I all of a sudden realized, I was like, wow, West Virginia's got it going on. We've got the best single pitch rock climbing around on the East Coast, at least. We have the greatest density of whitewater in the continental US, which that's saying a lot. So we have this amazing variety of whitewater, uh, uh, amazing hikes and history. And I love bluegrass music. And there's so many amazing things that 
was all right here. It was just, I had to go digging for it. And until I left the state, did I realize it was right underneath my nose the whole time? <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of this, just this amazing, like awakening that I've like had in my life where I'm like, wow, like West Virginia has got it going on. And there's a lot of opportunity to get other people to see it too. Corey Lilly is Director of Outdoor Economic Development in the city of Beckley. There's recently been a resurgence of labor activism across West Virginia. Now, we often think of unions in the context of coal miner strikes, but workers in other industries are organizing too. Ohio Valley Resource reporter Katie Myers has more. In late December, dozens of West Virginia union workers rallied at the Tudor's Biscuit World in Elkview, about 20 minutes outside of Charleston. Tudor's is a famous fast food chain in the region. Linemen, coal miners, educators, plumbers, and more lined up in front of the store to support the workers in their months-long effort to unionize their shop. Tudor's employees describe years of verbal abuse, low pay, and long hours. Jennifer Patton is one of those employees. She says the 9.50 an hour job, which does not include benefits, made her feel unsafe. I rode with somebody for three days consecutively that had COVID, and they did not tell us at all. I went to HR, and I was just pretty much told that I didn't need to know. The combination of COVID-19 and increased union activity in the region lit the match to get Tudor's workers to call for a union. Just the month before, staff at Cabell Huntington Hospital went on strike, as did workers at the Special Metals Alloy Plant in Huntington. They both cited safety issues. The thing that upsets me the most is right before the strike, we had a plant-wide shutdown. Fran Barker works a dangerous job at Special Metals, running a process that uses acid to treat metal. And things weren't fixed. Like, we were promised they would get fixed. That's the whole reason for the shutdown. Nothing got fixed. So how do you expect us to work safely? After spending three months out on the picket line, 75 workers striking at Special Metals were laid off, effective in early February. Maxim Baru is an organizer with International Workers of the World. He says public awareness of labor issues is growing, but labor unions still face major challenges. Just because there's a new sense of vibrancy doesn't make their situation more advantaged. A lot of employers still have enormous financial and political advantage over their employees. Union negotiations are never easy. The staff of a regional nonprofit called the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition organized their workplace last year. The company fired people who were involved in the unionization effort. Brendan Mucky and Bates was one of those fired workers. He said the process didn't need to be adversarial. One of the things that frustrates me the most about this whole thing is we didn't even get to present a path forward for OVEC regarding like workplace issues, pay, benefits, leave, simple things that could have been resolved fairly quickly. After a contentious process, OVEC decided to dissolve rather than recognize the union. At the Tudor's Biscuit World in Elkview, workers describe high turnover as a major challenge to organizing. Initially, 80% of employees signed union cards, but many of them no longer work at the store, leaving them with a much slighter majority. Daniel Nicholson is a former steam fitter who now works at Tudor's. He says even if they don't win their union, they're paving the way for other people to correct harmful work conditions. One of the main things that we did first is, is of course, like we reminded people that uh, West Virginia is one of the birthplaces of organized labor in the 1920s. Nicholson says in the old days, coal company owners threatened union mine workers with violence, and he thinks about that history every day. Which we hope it can't get to that point anymore, but, you know, you give somebody an inch and they take a mile. Tudors did not respond to a request for comment. A Tudors representative told the West Virginia Gazette Mail in November that the company already protects their workers, and they don't believe a union is needed. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers. Since Katie originally reported that story, Elkview Tudors employees held an election on January 25th to try to unionize their workplace. The workers lost their election, but they're exploring future legal options. Appalachia is home to creators of all kinds, including heavy metal musicians. In fact, there's a movement of musicians across the region who play a strain of music known as black metal. 
like Nachachuan, which is from northern West Virginia. The band plays and sings songs about local history and local places. Aaron Carey, who makes up half the band, spoke to me from his home in Wellsburg, West Virginia. So a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with the band or even black metal. So can you describe Nachachuan a little bit more and how you all developed the aesthetic around it? Well, this actually came out of some earlier bands, some extreme metal bands. If you're not familiar with that, take what you might know of heavy metal already and uh, a more aggressive vocal approach, a lot of much faster or much slower uh, tempos. And for us, uh, kind of a, a mix of metal from a lot of regions uh, across the globe, a lot of Scandinavian sounding ideas that we had from bands that we listened to there, Germanic bands and uh, some American bands as well. And um, I wanted to take a little break from just doing metal all the time and focus on a project that was historical in scope and classical and acoustic guitar, but with dark themes, dark melodies of of uh, some of the events that happened on the frontier in Appalachia. And out of that came this this album, Algonquian Mythos. Let's hear a little from a track on that album called Fallen Timbers. And then some of our newer records focus on uh, certain historical figures. Uh, Tecumseh, we have a song on the new record about Cornstalk. Uh, there's a song about, uh, loosely about George Washington on, on the new record. There's a song about the Battle of Fallen Timbers and uh, about Braddock's defeat. And uh, so we tend to come back to a lot of the major historical events such as battles that really stand out in the history books that people can connect with. But at the same time, I want to create lyrics that make people think about what did it look like? What, what did these battles or situations or just everyday life, what, what did history taste and smell like? What, what did it feel like to, to live back then? And that's not an easy thing to try to do, but that's what I tried to achieve through the lyrics is uh, kind of immersion in, in the past. Let's listen to Lost on the Trail of the Setting Sun. This is from Natachman's 2015 album, Heart of Akamon. I appreciate listening to the music as it helps me think about the land where we live and the region and, you know, that history you're talking about. But, you know, I understand for you, this isn't just about historical curiosity, that this is more personal. Can you talk about how Nechachwans, um figured into your exploration of your family's history? Well, yeah, that's uh, something that I and a lot of people from West Virginia, I think, have um, – have tried to discover more about for most of their lives. And I still get stories from, from my uncle and, and I did for my mom before she passed. And, um, the, the connections to downstate West Virginia, when I take trips down there to visit cemeteries and towns and things where, where my ancestors lived, um, little pieces of the puzzle start to come together. But I, I really think from, from the time I got interested in this around 13 years old or so, um, I was just really frustrated with the lack of information, um, how many things in history, uh, as far as family histories, had been wiped out between, say, uh, the late 1700s through 1850 or so. And uh, so from the outset, what I wanted to do with the first album was basically do a historical narrative that was just instrumental music 
which probably sounds absurd, but it, it made a lot of sense at the time. So through that, I wanted to release an album that maybe local people would, would check it out and, and contact me and say, well, you know, let me talk to you about my experience with this, or let me, uh, you know, share a story about my, my great grandmother, things like that. And, and that's largely been the case, but I thought it would stay a regional thing. Uh, and it really hasn't. It's it's grown way bigger than than I ever anticipated with uh, basically people from across the world sending me those types of messages. And, and it's been inspiring to me and, and kind of spurs me on to to learn more about my own past. And if Spotify is correct, I think that Nachachwan is listened to in like 83 countries or something now that may not have known anything about Appalachia or about the mountain Indian cultures, uh, the Monongahela and the mountain builders and, and such in this region. They may have known nothing about that before, and now we can have a conversation about that. So that keeps it relevant in my mind, more so than my own family connections or anything is the subject in general. I think it's just endlessly fascinating. I think you could write many albums about this. It does seem like Natachman has this like international listenership i think cult is the wrong word but it does seem to be like a relatively small group of passionate fans um around the world as you say what do you hear from them why why do they tell you this music connects with them even though they may not have ever been to appalachia or even heard of the region's name well well, first off there are people here that that contact me about this too and i think that's like really important to mention is uh, people that have been interested in stories they heard about, you know, things that happen in the hills behind their house. And it gets them thinking about that. And it kind of puts a, a musical face or an artistic face to things that they have been thinking about for a long time. And it, it's really bizarre, actually. It's like really obscure historical things that these songs are about. And uh, I think that a lot of them, uh, you know, to paraphrase are kind of like, man, I, I never thought that anybody would make music about this. That's really, that's the last thing I thought that a metal band would be about. But since it's their home place, they really appreciate it. Like, wow, that river is like, you know, two miles from my house that that, that song's about. But there's some people from tribes across the United States that, you know, it's just a, a common bond. Like, thank you for making this music. Keep doing it. That's great. There's people from other countries, too, that are maybe fascinated with, wow, you know, we, we don't find arrowheads here. Or, you know, we maybe have this ancient culture, but we don't have that close a connection with it because it was, you know, thousands of years ago. Or uh, maybe just the fact that a lot of bands in um, Europe and Scandinavia and such, they make their music about folk influence things in in their place some of the my favorite bands that i grew up sing about areas that i had never heard about before and that got me to learn about karelia for example in uh, finland and in russia uh, maybe some some areas of greece or some areas of hungary romania i listen to their music or even see the titles maybe i don't speak that language but I see it and I recognize it as a geographical thing, and that increases my knowledge of, of their place. And with the amount of history that I've read and delved into in this region, I thought, wow, if you're looking for a dark, intriguing story, step out in my backyard. Read about these things that happen along the Ohio River, these things that happen on the Kanawha, these mounds that still exist from a couple thousand years ago. Like, what was the history about that? Uh, the mound-building death cult that was in this region. That's fascinating stuff that I think rivals any metal band in the world would write about. The nature of the subject matter lends itself really well to dark folk and extreme metal elements. One thing that strikes me as you're describing this is just the the persistence of the theme of shining a light on you know, things that are dark or shrouded in mystery. And in some ways that feels really appropriate. It feels like that sort of, um, Nachachwan's modus operandi is 
putting a, a light on some of these things that have kind of been shrouded in history, shrouded in the past, and and putting a light on them in a way that we see how they're connected to us in the present. Kind of like what you were describing about where you can kind of squint your eyes at the landscape and imagine what the, what it used to look like. So in a lot of ways, that feels really appropriate. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it does. And, and I don't want that uh, constant focus on darkness to just be a trope that metal bands do, because, I mean, that's part of the genre. It's not happy, you know, unicorns and things all the time. It's uh, some pretty dark topics to begin with, but I don't want it to come across as uh, bitter or angry or, uh, you know, uh, moping about bad things that have happened. Uh, it's more like, look, there's a dark set of circumstances and, a, you know, maybe a dark environment. But what do we do with that? What did people do with that? What was the outcome of that? You're outnumbered or you're pushed down or you're this or that. But, you know, you rise up in the morning, you hold your head up high, you don't grovel and you just keep marching on. And I think that's kind of been the spirit of Appalachia, hasn't it? That was Aaron Carey, who plays guitar and sings in Nechachwan. The band's new album, Kanawa Black, is scheduled for release in May on Bind Rune Records. Traumatic experiences can affect how children learn and act. After the break, we'll meet a grandmother who's seen this firsthand. She was just traumatized and couldn't focus and very destructive. Everything she touched, she'd tear up because she saw that in her life. Her life been torn apart. How can we help kids who've experienced trauma and support the people who care for them? You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. are or where you're from, adversity is a part of being human. A federal study found that more than 60% of people surveyed had what's known as an adverse childhood experience. This could include violence, abuse, neglect, or an unstable living situation. Research shows that trauma in childhood can lead to chronic mental and physical problems later in life. Even one event can cause problems. But what happens when children experience multiple traumas? We're going to turn the rest of our episode over to Trey Kay. He's the host of the podcast called Us and Them. And a heads up, it's probably not a suitable story for children. I feel 90 sometimes. I don't drink, smoke. I'm on a no-stress diet. Let's put it that way. Try not to get stressed, but I do, but I don't show it. Joanna is 69. We're not using her last name to protect her privacy and her family's. She's an African-American woman living in southwestern West Virginia. She's retired from a long career in public education. Despite looking healthy and fit, she's got some pretty serious health concerns. I am a 23-year colon cancer survivor. I've had a stent put in my heart. I just became a type 2 diabetic. I've been through a lot, but God's not through with me yet. Trauma has been defined as the lasting effects of emotional shock. That shock can come in many forms. For Joanna, it was a voicemail. She said, hey, Mom. She was horrid because she used to choke her out a lot, too. You know, I could tell she had been through something. In 2015, Joanna got a message from her 31-year-old daughter, Tiffany, who was living in Mississippi with an abusive husband. She also used drugs. 
She said, hey, Mom, I'm just calling to wish you a happy birthday and to let you know that Kurt said, Kurt was talking about killing me tonight. I wasn't at home. She just left a message. And if anything happens to me, you know he did it. And I played that over a thousand, thousand, thousand times. A month later, Joanna's daughter Tiffany was dead. I was in denial. I was in denial when my sister came down and told me, and I went to my bathroom and locked myself up in the bathroom. I called Mississippi to the house she was living in. I think he's the one answered the phone. I said, may I speak to Tiffany? He said, Tiffany's no longer with us. And I said, what do you mean? Tiffany's no longer with us. And he said, she's, she died. That's it. And that's when I went off. I was not myself for two years. I lost like 25 pounds. I wasn't eating, you know. It's, it's still hard to believe, but I was in denial when I got that phone call. But that's a phone call you don't want to get about your child. Joanna traveled to Mississippi to view her daughter's body and to find her granddaughter. Joanna had met her granddaughter once before. She didn't know much about M. We're going to use her first initial just to protect her privacy. Joanna says M was born when Tiffany was high on crack cocaine. M is 11 now, living with Joanna here in West Virginia. I met with them to talk about the traumas they've survived. I expected M would be shy meeting me, but she is poised and polite. She looks and acts older than her age. She is tall with long arms and legs. There's a lightness to M that surprises me, given all the heaviness of her mom's death and all that she's been through. She was just five when her father shot and killed her mom in the family bathroom. Em was playing outside nearby. She told me what she remembered about that day. Oh, she was in the bathroom, right? And then when I, I was looking out the window to see what my dad was doing, then I loved to go play with my, a basketball with my cousins. And then I heard a gunshot, and then I hurry up and I hurried up and ran to the bedroom, and then I saw everyone like crying, and I saw like every, my aunt and my uh, one of my cousins, she was a girl, and my dad uh, hovering over her body and crying. So I was crying because my I saw my dad uh, going to jail. So did, did the police come and, 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 and take him away? Mm-hmm. What was that like? Um, scary. And I'm like, I was crying very, a lot, because I was like worried, worried about my dad and all of my other family. So. M's father is in prison now. It took 18 months for Joanna to get custody of M and bring her to West Virginia. M spent nearly a year in foster care, adding more stress to an already traumatic situation. Joanna says that when they were first together, M would not leave her side, even when she went to the mailbox. Joanna says her granddaughter has terrible nightmares and trouble sleeping. Um, she just wake up screaming and hollering, and I I made recordings on my phone. It's long gone. All night long, Nana, 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 I can't sleep. Nana, 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 I can't sleep. This was two years. I was not sleeping, so I went in my living room, 
we slept in the living room for two years because she could not sleep. She was having nightmares, scared of her shadow. Or one night she woke me up just screaming and hollering. I said, what is it? She was pointing at her backpack. I said, what is it? She had all these little dolls and stuff that hang on the outside and stuff. They're evil. I said, who's evil? What are you talking about? Those things on my backpack. I said, no, they're not. You just, your mind playing tricks on you. Go back to bed. I said, oh, God, help this child. It's been five years since Joanna adopted M. Joanna says her granddaughter still has trouble focusing and can be delusional. She says M is very anxious and can't sit still. But she has come a long way. When I first got her, she was like a square on crack. I mean, she was just running, couldn't, she couldn't sit down, and she couldn't focus. She just, the first two years in elementary, the teachers had to hold her down. That's how bad she was. She was just traumatized and couldn't focus and, you know, just very destructive. Everything she touched, she'd tear up because she saw that in her life. Her life been torn apart. So she would tear up stuff. She hates going in the store. When I first took her in the store, when I first got her, she was all over the place, under clothes and knocking over stuff and stuff. I said, I can't deal with this. She was climbing across the couches, and it was just crazy. She, she had no control of how her behavior was because of what she had been through, you know, the abuse and stuff she had seen in that household. She was being told it was a secret what goes on in that house. She can't say nothing to nobody about. And that stuck in her mind, you know. M's been diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Joanna says she's on five different medications. She's on Adderall. I can't remember all them names, they're funny names. Something for sleeping, ADHD. Something to make her more focused. But she'd been through a list of medications since I've had her. Some of them didn't help her because she was seeing things. And some of the stuff she was taking was making her see more things. You know what I'm saying? My question is, she's a child. You wonder, like, how long or how, how these experiences might stay with her as she grows older. Is that something that you're concerned about? Yeah, uh, I think she'll be troubled the rest of her life with the life she's lived so far, you know. That's why I have her in with a psychiatrist, psychologist, and trying to keep her involved in the church and stuff like that so she can keep her mind off of it. Hopefully I can get her into track this spring, give her that outlet to, you know, Use up some of that energy because it's nonstop at home. There seems to be a lot of love in Joanna's eyes as she looks at her granddaughter. Like most 11 year olds, M's idea about what she wants to be when she grows up changes almost daily. A teacher a babysitter, a track star. As we wrap up our conversation, we get to talking about how tall Em is and her love for track and basketball. I'll be sudden, but just watch. <laughs> just watch. That's, that's pretty dang going tall. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone will love me. Yeah. What, okay, why, why would you want to be so tall? Because I can, uh, I don't know. Actually, yes, yes, I like, uh, I like jumping. I love running, and I love doing everything that's tall related and running, really. As you said that, you just stretch your arms out real wide. It's almost like you like to take up a lot of space. You like, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and I also might be the tallest person in the world soon. Just watch. Yeah, we don't want to go that far. I do. I do. Ten feet. Yeah, that's what I'm going for. <laughs> that would be awkward. You, you, you remember 
uh, Nana, do you remember Wilt Chamberlain? Mm-hmm. I remember there was a Life magazine had a picture of like, he had a little sports car. Mm-hmm. And they had to put his seat in the back seat of the car because he was so tall. Because he was 7'1", so <laughs> something you, like that. You don't Google and ask about Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah, it'll come up. Yeah. He was, he was a famous basketball player, one of the great ones. He was the only guy who ever scored 100 points in a game. But guess what? I'll, I'll score more. Yeah. I'll score more. Oh, okay. I'll practice basketball all night, all day, <laughs> and every day. Yes. <laughs> M's body and brain continue to process unimaginable trauma and loss of both of her parents and her home and friends in Mississippi. Her grandma, Joanna, is also grieving, suffering the loss of her daughter and her dreams of retirement. She's also raising a young girl who potentially has struggles ahead. And yet, Joanna seems to be providing a nurturing, safe, supportive environment for Em. And Em says she kind of likes school and has friends there, and she loves her teachers. All of these ingredients in M's life are what experts like Kathy Zafran say are the positive essentials needed to overcome the long-term effects of trauma. Kids need to know that someone loves them. They need to have hope. Something as simple as hope that it's going to be okay is critical. Imagine a life without it. Imagine if that child didn't have grandma who rescued her. What if she stayed in the foster care system and was bounced around and had no one to connect to? We have a lot of children in the system like that. Zafran has been a licensed professional counselor in West Virginia for 30 years. She works primarily with high-risk foster care children who have lived through significant trauma. Zafran says early in her career, she and her colleagues were taking the wrong approach with the kids they were trying to help. We were failing on a couple levels. We were trying a variety of things to get the girls that we worked with to, I'm going to use the word control, because that's what it was at the time, their behavior. So we did things like point systems, level systems, all these things to try to regulate externally what was happening to these girls in their world so that they could, um, you know, I'll use this word to behave, right, and stay out of trouble. And then... One day, someone recommended that I watch this video by Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. In the mid-90s, the CDC and Kaiser Permanente discovered an exposure that dramatically increased the risk for seven out of ten of the leading causes of death in the United States. In high doses, it affects brain development, the immune system, hormonal systems, and even the way our DNA is read and transcribed. Folks who are exposed in very high doses have triple the lifetime risk of heart disease and lung cancer and a 20-year difference in life expectancy. And yet doctors today are not trained in routine screening or treatment. Now, the exposure I'm talking about is not a pesticide or a packaging chemical. It's childhood trauma. I'm not talking about failing a test or losing a basketball game. I am talking about threats that are so severe or pervasive that they literally get under our skin and change our physiology. Things like abuse or neglect or growing up with a parent who struggles with mental illness or substance dependence. The science is clear. Early adversity dramatically affects health across a lifetime. Pediatrician Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's TED Talk nearly a decade ago had a massive influence on Zafran and many others. At the time, Burke Harris was running a children's clinic in an underserved San Francisco community. The research she's talking about is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, widely known by its acronym, ACEs. 
Doctors and researchers from a major California healthcare system and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, conducted the study. Around 17,000 Kaiser Permanente members participated over a two-year period in the mid-1990s, split evenly between men and women. Their average age was 57. 80% of the study subjects were white, 10% African-American, 10% Asian, and Native Americans made up less than 1% of the group. The survey consisted of 10 questions about traumatic events before the age of 18. The study's trauma categories include childhood neglect and abuse, including emotional and physical neglect, and emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. The rest of the questions ask about family dysfunction, including substance abuse, mental illness, parental separation and divorce, domestic violence, and incarceration of a family member. Every category marked yes adds one point. People end up with a score from zero to a maximum of 10 points. Researchers then looked at the mental and physical health outcomes of the 17,000 adults in the study. The survey concluded that the more traumas in early life lead to the risk of poor health outcomes later on. The research got almost no attention when it was published in 1998. Today, its findings are considered groundbreaking. Someone who answered yes to four or more of the ten questions was twice as susceptible to heart disease and cancer and four and a half times more likely to become depressed than a person without as many childhood traumas. The likelihood of suicide is a significant finding. An adult with a score of four or above is more than 40 times more likely to attempt suicide than a person with a score of zero. And a person with a score of six or more has a shortened life expectancy of almost 20 years. So there was that initial direct correlation between higher adversities, long-term health outcomes. It was that simple. And I don't think they even thought that would happen, but it did. Then everyone then started looking at it. Here's licensed counselor Kathy Zafran again. How do we now take this and utilize it to mitigate those adversities, to have better outcomes for children as adults now who had these adversities, adverse childhood experiences. The Adverse Childhood Experiences study showed that adversity is very common. 67% of people surveyed reported at least one childhood trauma, while 11% said they had five or more. That original study has been repeated many times with hundreds of thousands of people. They all show that significant adversity leads to chronic illness and disease. The trauma-informed movement has latched on to the Adverse Childhood Experiences research as scientific proof of adversity's consequences. Many believe if people just learn about the science, it will lead to a more compassionate, healthy, and just society. And so, interest in the study has exploded in recent years. It's not just that the research is considered important from a disease perspective. Since the initial work, new research offers strategies to lessen the impacts of trauma, even prevent it. They range from self-compassion and art therapy to programs helping single parents stay healthy and employed to learning brain science so parents can soothe themselves and their children. Across the country, advocates are rallying around these optimistic trauma-informed messages. They're sharing information and education about the study and ways to heal from trauma. They're lobbying institutions to take a closer look at this research. In West Virginia, Zafran helped form a coalition in the hopes of making an impact in the state. I am just so tickled that it surfaced in West Virginia in, in the most beautiful grassroots way that all of a sudden all these people just came out of the closets, not literally, but you know what I mean, out to just say, we need to learn more about this and we want to share this. That's one thing about the ACES Coalition. It's not just a professional group. 
we have folks on there who are just have lived experiences who want to be part of it. We need to hear what they have to say. So how do you get this message into every corner of West Virginia so that we all can engage with each other in a trauma-informed way? How do you start basically sharing this? There are folks across the country looking at how do we form this type of engagement that helps everyone be heard, have a voice, and feel supported and be connected to others. We've been listening to a recent episode of Us and Them, a podcast produced here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. The rest of the episode explores recent research into helping kids who've faced trauma. It's worth listening to. Find us and them wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at wvpublic.org. And hey, next week, we're going to talk about love. Let's face it. Valentine's Day gets a lot of flack for being a sappy marketing ploy to sell cards, flowers, and chocolate. But we think there's more to it than just that. We'll hear from you, our listeners sharing some of your Appalachian love stories. I proceeded to tell her all about me, which at that time was college dropout, practically negative credit score, default on student loans, you know, all the stuff that you typically tell a woman to to, to woo her. I more or less left that dinner thinking, ah, you know, we, we should just be friends. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Nachachwan, Dog and Gun, West Swing, and Dinosaur Burbs. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our interim executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. And a warm welcome to Alex Runyon. She's our new associate producer. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.